Do please be seated. Well, in this series, we've been challenged to examine our identity and our activity, but also to be careful. I think Satan would like it if we got the order wrong. Perhaps you look at your activity and you look at times and places where you failed and you feel now as though God could not possibly love you after what you've done. Or perhaps you look at things you've achieved and you feel as though somehow after all you've done for the Lord, he must love you now. I don't think Satan would mind either of these approaches, actually, because both get the order wrong. Colossians says that your activity, whether it's good activity or bad activity, never gets to define your identity. Only Christ gets to do that. And now, through Christ, by by grace, when the Father looks at you, he sees the Son. You have the Son's ID. You have Christ's identity and Good theology always begins with the question of identity first and gets on to the secondary issue of activity second. Your identity is in Christ by grace. That said, activity, it's important. It's still worth looking at. And in this series, really, we're looking at what happens when a a church beholds her identity and yearns for her activity to, to catch up. There's a summary of this idea in in Colossians chapter 3 and uh, in verse 1. Do please turn to that in the Pew Bibles or smartphone or whatever. Actual Bible of your own. Who knows? I live in hope. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then, it's a joke. If then, edgy joke. If then, you have been raised, brackets up, close brackets, with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is. It's resurrection language in verse 1, isn't it? And if that sounds strange to you because you've not died yet, why is he talking about me having resurrected already? Verse 3 says, actually, you have. You have died, spiritually speaking. At conversion, when you came to Christ, when you turned to Christ, when you were saved, when you were transferred from the dominion of darkness, when you were adopted, when you were born again, you were raised to a new life. You died to your old one when you were born again, and you rose again. You received a new ID. That was the point at which you became a saint. That was the moment when Christ's identity became your own. And and that thing that happened to you at conversion, that spiritual death and spiritual resurrection, is only a prototype. It's only a snapshot. It's only a taste of what is yet to come when Christ returns or calls you home and you are made complete. And so he says in verse 2, set your mind on things that are above where you're headed and not on things that are down on earth where you've been. Behold your identity, which is in Christ, up and let your activity catch up. Let your Activity, behold your destiny and your identity and catch up. Well, Ben, my son, recently bought a new scooter. And you might have seen me smiling because out of the window, 
I saw he and Hannah arrive to church on it this morning. He gave her a backy all the way up, and I saw a lot of cars uh, weaving around him. He's been saving up for this scooter for absolutely weeks, and you can go and see it after the service. It's cool. Uh, It is fast. It is a man scooter. And uh, it gets up to 19.6 miles an hour on the back hill, which is pretty quick on a scooter. And it has, thankfully, a disc brake at the back, which you need. And so, obviously, with this new thing, we've been teaching them some basic safety principles, very basic ones. In any sport, they teach you, don't they, in any sport, that you need to keep your eye on the ball and then you'll make the shot. So in throwing sports and hitting sports and kicking sports, they teach you, keep your eye on the ball all the time. It's called object fixation. That's the point, that wherever the eyes go, the body follows. Uh, And in motorsports, in racing sports and things like that, they teach the very same principle but with the opposite point, the opposite purpose that actually there are things you don't want to look at because you don't want to hit them. It's uh, the idea that on street racing, if there's you know, a, a, a dangerous barrier or maybe a, a slippery surface, you don't look at that because that's where you'll end up. And uh, you find this in motor racing. Obviously, you're all thinking about motor racing for about eight hours a day right now because the Formula One season is about to start again. And I know that you're very distracted by uh, winter testing in Barcelona on the 18th. And just try to focus on the word for a bit, will you? And stop talking about Formula One. You find this with with a racing driver, that they're often distracted by, by hazards on the circuit and end up hitting them. And not only do they get distracted by things they shouldn't look at, they're also distracted by one another. You find that sometimes when a lead driver, for instance, misses the braking zone or, or locks a wheel, that the cars that are following closely behind will, will have the same accident and go off even worse at the same place. It's object fixation. And it's tempting for us as, as believers in the same way to fixate on the world around us, to get fixated on the hazards of this world and this life, or to get fixated on each other. And, you know, what's he doing? What's she doing? Why are they going there? How can they afford to buy that? Why can't I have one? Very tempting to get fixated on other people. And when we do this, it usually ends in a crash. So stop it, says Paul. Stop it, will you? Stop worrying about the world. Stop worrying about what everyone else is doing. Stop worrying about what you think of them and what they think of you and what if they hear about what you think of them and tell everybody what you think of them, then what will they think of you? Stop it, Fox Chapel. That's like our anti-charism in this town and it needs to die. Set your minds, verse 2, on things that are above and not on earth and look up. Get some object fixation, but make sure it's Christ who is the object of your fixation. For you have died, verse 3. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Hiding with Jesus. Slightly odd-sounding comment. Almost sounds like um, a game of spiritual sardines that the youth has been playing. The idea of hiding, hiding with Jesus, strange comment. It's It's a word or a phrase that comes from the Old Testament. It's an Old Covenant idea And the Jewish listeners or readers of Paul would immediately get what he was talking about. 
Uh, in the psalm appointed for today, we, we, we prayed the same point, that God would hide us in the secrecy of his dwelling. Now, God's dwelling was the place of God's very presence. In the Old Covenant, this was the temple and specifically the Holy of Holies in the temple, where the ark was, where God was, the tabernacle, the place of his physical presence. And it was a wonderful place, but it was so holy, the ground was so holy that if people approached inappropriately, they might well even die. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, preparing for months, the holiest person in the holiest place, preparing. And so nervous were they that He would just die from the presence of God on account of his unholiness. The other priests would tie a rope around his waist and he would go in and if he just carked it in there, they would drag him back out on a string. You know, I wonder if they even wore gloves so they didn't touch the rope. I don't know. They they were terrified of the presence of God and that God would now promise not only to let us in or walk past or have a quick look, but actually hang out in there, hide out in there, dwell and hide out like spiritual sardines pressed against God himself in there is a wonderful promise indeed. That which is dangerous became safe for the saints in Christ Jesus. And there is a death, but it's Christ's death on our behalf that lets us in. And there's another death. And that is your death when you turn to him in faith. The old has gone, the new has come. You are a new creation. Our fixation, therefore, should be on him. And where is he? Up. Verse 1, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's where we're going, unless and until, verse 4, in glory, he comes again to judge the living and the dead, then we will appear with him. But we must have our fixation on him. Let your activity behold your destiny and catch up. How to illustrate the point? How do you nail this point? Well, Paul's primary metaphor here to to illustrate the point and really get our heads around it for this change of activity is a change of clothing. Clothes in this section of Colossians, becomes the controlling metaphor. And he says, let's have a spiritual makeover. Let's uh, have a a new life. Let's therefore get rid of the clothes of the old life. That's so last season, all that stuff. It's time for a change. So in verse 7, he says, in these two, you once walked. These old spiritual clothes are the things that used to characterize who you were. You were living in them, it says. Have you seen a photograph of yourself from the 1980s? Have you seen one? Can you believe that you dressed like that in the 80s? You once walked around like that. Massive glasses, even bigger hair, luminous T-shirts. What were we thinking? Tie-dye. The 90s weren't any better. I had a sense of parting and long hair. I thought I looked like Kurt Cobain from Nirvana. <laughs> Saw a photograph recently. It was more like Rachel from Friends. <laughs> you once lived like that, guys. Don't you laugh? I hope you're laughing at yourselves. Oh, this looks cool, doesn't it? You know, neck ache because of the size of the frames. You know, we, we, 
we, we were weird. We were so weird in, in, in just a few years ago. You once walked around like that, and it seemed okay. It, it's not okay. <laughs> it's time for a spiritual makeover. It's time, if you've got some of that old stuff, it, it, it didn't look good then. It really doesn't look good now, and you've got to get rid of it, he, he says. That is not how we are now. You now dwell in Christ. Put to death, verse 5, therefore, at what is earthly in you, the old clothes of the old life, which was really no life at all. It was a death. Get rid of your old dead man clothes. Very strong language here. You've killed off the old self. Now kill off the old clothes. What are they? What are the old clothes? What is your 80s spiritual closet that you're hoping no one ever finds out about? Well, there's two lists here, and it's a, it's a PG-13 warning uh, right now for you, but I won't go too deeply into it. Uh, verse 5 says, Sexual immorality... Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Very private things. It's really to do with any kind of activity of any kind outside of marriage. It includes any thinking, any looking, any doing with anyone that is not your spouse. It's a broad list. Impurity, uncontrolled lust. Passions, it means craving, it means greed for more. It means intense feelings about people or things that are so intense and so pervasive and so profound and you're so fixated upon that that feeling about that person could even be described as worship. And that is idolatry. This list is so broad that I would say every single one of us on this room will at some point find ourselves on it. It doesn't just zoom in on one particular type of sexual sin and say that's the one that's bad and all the others are okay. It treats them all equally. And so, saints, if you're looking around the room or you're looking around the community and judging people for the way they have behaved, but you've driven past the the park and seen someone attractive and slowed down and had a second look and then slowed down some more and checked the mirrors to see what they look like from the other side, you're on the list. And if you constructed in your head an elaborate fantasy about a mythical person, a a fantastical version of your spouse, perhaps, who is perfect and never sets a foot wrong and looks right and acts right. And maybe you've even built an entire fantasy family in your head that you don't have. You're on the list. And boy, did it get weird in here when I read it out. Did Did you see how weird it got when I said one little word? I guess we're on the list. That's all I'm saying. It's just possible that you're reading the list right now and you're not uncomfortable. It's possible, actually, that you hear the list and you're feeling quite smug. Maybe you have a very, very low interest in these things or, or maybe you've been peculiarly gifted and called by the Holy Spirit for celibacy and if that's uh, who you are, that is a wonderful thing. It, it may even be, and I speak incredibly delicately, that you're satisfied in your current arrangement and so not drawn to very much on this list. And that's great as well. But if you're feeling smug or feeling shame about this list, well, that's what Satan wants, isn't it? Because you've only gone and got the order wrong and looked at the activity first and the identity second. Good theology starts with the identity question first 
and gets on to the activity question second, and we know who you are in Christ. And also, there's another list, verse 8. Completely different list. If you're not on list number one, you're almost certainly on list number two. If we're going to be honest, you're probably on them both. Verse 8. Anger, wrath, sometimes pronounced wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. It's another comprehensive list, which is itself comprehensive itself, but then it's next to another comprehensive list. So the comprehensiveness is comprehensive. You get the point. And this one, instead of private thinking stuff that very few people know about, this is more public stuff that I'm afraid everyone can observe. Anger, a vengeance word, indignation, wrath. No, it's wrath. I can't, I can't, all right? I'm trying so hard. Um, Let's do it in Greek. Thumos, we all agree. Uh, It's a fierce heat kind of a word, thumos, from which we get words like thermos, keeps your soup warm. Why? Because it's wrath. It's a thermal, boiling up, hot, kind of an inflamed, drunken, descended red mist word. And uh, malice, depravity, shamelessness, law-breaking, slander, blasphemia in Greek. It means the speaking badly of people. This is that toxic muckraking and overblowing of problems and downputting of people. It's the imagining intentions that they never really had and exaggerating faults that they did have that so frequently characterizes a church when people are bored. We find that when we're bored, when our primary ministry is to warm a pew and go home again, that in our boredom, we start to cause trouble. Why describe this trouble? Why describe this slander with a word so strong as blasphemia, blasphemy? Why describe an attack on Christians with the same word that we normally use for an attack on God himself? The reason is because the Christians are hidden with Christ hidden in Christ with God. The identity of a Christian is the identity of the Christ. So when they come for you with their slander, they come for Christ with their slander, and that's why Paul can use this word blasphemy. When they attack you, they attack God himself. Obscene talk, filthy communications, any rough jokes that cross the line. We all know jokes. Edgy jokes are good. Jokes across the line are not good. These also should be put away because verse 8 says, you have, verse 9, put on the old self with its practices. Put off the old self with its practices, it says. Uh, Walking around in, in these things, these old sins, these old spiritual clothes, it's like walking around still in your school uniform after you've graduated. It's just not appropriate. You've moved on from these things. These are the clothes of your old death life. These are the old dead man's clothes. Stop rummaging around in in the dead man's closet and pulling out weird stuff from the 80s, he says. Because, verse 10, you have put on the new self. You're a new creation. You have a new ID, which is being renewed in the, the present passive. It's ongoing in the knowledge after the image of the creator. And I think... This explains why sometimes, though you are alive, you sometimes still play dead. 
We have a new ID, but we sometimes reach for the old activity. So as you wake each day and you know that you are a saint, I think it's saying, be more the saint that you already are. Such that Paul can say when a church does this, when a whole body of believers does this, when a whole body of believers who already has a new ID starts to see the activity slowly catch up and maybe go back and catch up and go back and catch up, but the trend is up. When a church does this, it is awesome. Here, in this church, he says, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, But Christ is all and in all. The Colossian church was a cobbled hodgepodge of of, of different disparate groups from all over the place. They had radically different backgrounds, different races, different histories, different identities, different tastes and preferences, even different clothing. And the Jews looked down on the Greeks, and the Greeks looked down on the barbarians, and the barbarians looked down on the Scythians, and the Scythians looked down on the slaves. And Paul says, stop it, will you? Stop looking around at each other and looking down on each other. Lift up your eyes, fixate on Christ, and look up. Because Christ is all and in all. And therefore, your futiling socioeconomic and racial preferences and prejudices are overwhelmed in Christ Jesus, whose identity is the one that really matters. The Christian comedian, John Christ, I'm going to go and see him next month, said on Instagram, I don't have Instagram, just trying to look cooler than I am. My wife has Instagram, I heard it. John Christ, comedian, Instagram. He said, uh, you see someone at a bar, And uh, you see them drunk, and then you see them a few days later in church. And then when you see them in church, you look at them, and you remember what they did, and you you say to yourself, what a liar. What a hypocrite. But that person right there, ladies and gentlemen, is an alcoholic. And we jump all over them because of what we've seen them do. But John Chris says in this Instagram post, and it's a rant, not a joke, he says, the grace never seems to work the other way around. It should do. Let's say you see someone out and about and you know that they're a Christian and you see them doing something that you don't really approve of. Why is it that we never say, you know, oh, bummer. It's a shame they're doing that because that's not who that guy really is. I know who that guy is. That guy is a Christian. And he's just slipped up this moment and doing some old activity that's not who he really is. Saint is an identity. Sin is an activity. Sometimes all of us who are alive in Christ Jesus will reach back into the dead man's closet and pull out something rotten and put it on for a bit. Put it down again. Clothes do not make of the man. Christ does. Having removed some of the old clothes, verse 12 then says, uh, let us put on some new stuff. Let us uh, get a new spiritual wardrobe, an armoire, a closet, a chiffero, a tall boy. Trying to find a word that works. There are people listening in many countries now, and I think that just about covers it. Get a new receptacle for the housing of garments. (laughs) One that is opened by a door of grace. And uh, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, some new stuff. Remember, your identity is 
is not an issue here. You're holy, you're beloved. Just a recap in case you're getting uh, Satan's trap and falling and thinking activity is the main issue. It isn't. You're holy and beloved. You know that. Being holy and beloved, put on some clothing of the holy and beloved. This is compassionate heart, the bowels, tender mercy, uh, kindness, moral gentleness, humility. Humility means not relying on your rights. You have a right. Don't rely on it. It is the opposite of entitlement. In, In church, our desire, church, should always be that everyone else gets their own way except for us. We lay down our own way when we come in to church, and we live for the sake of others. In every other secular organization, it works the other way around. And the longer you've been there, and the nearer the top you are, the more of an enhanced say you get in the way things should be. Why else would golf clubs frequently poll their members about wearing denim in the clubhouse, find overwhelming support for it, and then decide to say no? I'll tell you why. Because someone important said no. That's why. Someone important said, that's not what I want, so everyone else has to dress like me. Don't bring that necrotic mindset into the church with you. Don't put some silly preference between the lost and their Lord. If people who don't yet belong to this church want to look or behave or think or dress a certain way, then we should do that so that they feel comfortable until they get saved. If all the Jews had said, you know, we really like Jesus, but no Greeks allowed, okay, because they dress weird. And all the Greeks had said, we really like this, but, you know, no barbarians allowed because their food smells. And the barbarians said, no Scythians, they don't even eat food. I don't know what that muck is. And all the Scythians, they were really looked down on, by the way. And the Scythians had said, yeah, but at least we're not slaves. They can't join. There would be no church. If everybody said, only people like me can come here, you'd be the only one. 40% of Allegheny County in a government survey self-identified as being non-Christian. 40% when asked, would you like to go to heaven, said no, thank you very much. And based on church attendance, that figure should be nearer 80%. And we don't get to judge who's saved and who's not. We're going to be surprised. There'll be a few people out there that take us by surprise and get saved, just as there'll be a few people in here that take us by surprise and are lost. We don't get to judge. Jesus does. But the point is this. We have to take that figure, that conservative figure, based on people's self-identification and recognize that as we go around this county, four out of every five people we meet will not be saved. They are likely still dead. They are likely lost. They are likely desperate for salvation and have yet to find it. So ask yourself what they need and be that church. Ask yourself what the lost needs. Shelve your preferences and with humility put them first. Meekness, another gentle word, patience. Favorite word in the whole New Testament, patience. You've got to have one. This is it. Macrothumia in Greek. Uh, It literally means long fuse or big bomb or something like that. Uh, Imagine a cartoon bomb. You know the old ones? You know, Wile E. Coyote. 
big bomb. It says bomb on it with a huge wick going like this. Well, you know what a short fuse is, don't you? Someone says, I have a short fuse. It means they're easily angered and suddenly erupt out of nowhere. Paul says, have a long fuse. It doesn't mean don't get angry or don't get upset or don't get irritated. It doesn't mean any of those things. All of those things will happen to you because you're a human. But if you have a long fuse, when you get that seething feeling and it starts to hiss, you have a long time to put it out before it goes boom and takes out some other people with you. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. At seminary, they set me an essay, 3,000 words, with the question, must a Christian forgive? I just quoted Colossians 3.13, and I said, yeah. I had 2,997 words to spare. I didn't get a very good mark. Not academically rigorous, they said. I should have got 100% because I was right. Verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's a wonderful image. It's the image of a brooch or a cloak fastener, some kind of last piece of the ensemble that holds it all together. It's the, the sort of the, the binding piece of the whole outfit. Without this, without this last piece holding it all together and the buttons done up properly, this whole new outfit that you've been putting on will unravel, that the hem will unravel and unwind. Things will start falling off. You must bind up all of these things primarily with love. Christ loved us so much. He gave his life for us offered himself up as a ransom to welcome us into the dwelling place of God, not to visit, but to dwell and to hide out. Be a church that loves. Let's be a church that is so crazily confident in in her identity and so crazily confident in her destiny that she is bold to examine afresh her activity and then by grace becomes a church that grows in Christ up. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have conformed us to your likeness in Christ Jesus already. There's just a few old clothes, and we've put on some new things, and maybe a few old things. And Father, if, as we picture that image, we feel perhaps uh, shame about the way we've behaved or the things that have snared us. Pray that we would do our good theology and not Satan's theology. Remind ourselves that our identity is not in question. Beholding our identity and our destiny, Father, would you give us grace slowly, day by day, maybe two steps forward and one step back to see that activity change until it manifests only love. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's uh, confess our faith in the words of the creed as we stand together and we say, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen.
Let us pray as we sit or kneel. Well, our Heavenly Father, we pray for the church the world over, and especially those corners of the world where she is persecuted, where the church is such a cultural challenge to oppressive regimes that she is attacked physically, the pastors are imprisoned, and the members are persecuted. We pray especially, Lord, and there are many such places, but we pray especially for the Chinese church. As the government feels threatened by the lively word, we thank you that you are not threatened by a dead regime. And we pray, Lord God, that you would bring to the people of China yet more light. We thank you that the largest church in the world that the world has ever seen is in a place with the greatest persecution. And we pray, God, that you would bless and protect them there. Father, of course, there are many, many places where your saints in light have gone out to share the good news and have been treated with hostility. So we pray for missionaries this morning, missionaries in far-flung lands and those in our own city. Pray especially for our three main mission partners. We ask that you would bless and protect the Shepherd's Heart Ministry with its ministry to the homeless. We pray for the Uncommon Grounds Cafe and Church Army in Aliquippa, for the feeding of those with very little and those who yearn to be working class, if only they could be employed. And Father God, would you pour out grace upon Herb in that church? And we pray especially for Josh Gerdes and his ministry at Urban Impact, and his ministry on the north side. We thank you, God, for those children who've learned to read, who've come to Christ, who've been given food and new glasses in great number for the thousands of meals that have been served to those who would have gone hungry from that ministry. We pray for the men and women under Pastor Ed who, who worship and work there day in, day out. And we ask God that you would bless those in our own congregation who've gone out to serve in those three places. We thank you, God, for the ten men and women who've gone out to those three places, and we pray that you would bless them as they serve there and give us a yearning and a passion for that mission. Father, for those of us who are infirm or sick or worried, those of us who are feeling tempted or oppressed, we lift up names quietly in our hearts or aloud if we have permission. We pray for grace and the inbreaking of your Holy Spirit, the healing and, and health. Let's name people out loud. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.